What a message. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. It's good to be here and worship together with you today. Let's say our memory verse for the month of July together. Hard to believe that the month is coming to an end, but here we are. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. This verse is a part of the text that we're going to be exploring today as a congregation. And this is one of the more familiar and exciting parts, I believe, of of Jesus' earthly ministry when he ascended to give his sermon on the mount. Before we get there, though, quite the excitement last week for a number of our students who returned home from a week in West Virginia, and we're praising the Lord that they got back home to us safely, and last night I heard lots of stories, in fact, uh, our son who was on the trip, he could not stop sharing, especially uh, he could not stop sharing about a a 79-year-old gentleman who was a team leader on the trip. I believe his name was Tom. And, and let me tell you, for anyone in here who thinks they might be too old to lead an unruly group of youth across the country on a missions trip, Tom puts us all to shame. 79 years old, Brighton said he had more energy than all of us. And, uh, and, and to make things even more interesting, I believe that it was shared that just a number of weeks before the actual trip, Uh, took place, Tom was actually in the hospital with a heart condition, and and people from his church were praying that he would make it, that he would survive. And here he was just a number of weeks later, not just surviving, but thriving, uh, and leading a team of students on a uh, missions trip. And so, wow, what a wonderful experience. I'm sure you're going to hear about him. Our students are going to be sharing uh, in a few weeks at the Family Life Hour, and I can't imagine that they're going to be sharing without giving a few of their exciting stories and adventures with Tom. But, but what would compel a 79-year-old man to do this, to live this way, to, to be so full of energy and life at his age, to continue to be engaged and involved in the lives of students? And, and I believe it's Christ. I believe it's, it's an image of discipleship. And the Lord gifts us all very differently. He, he wires us all very differently. But as we walk in the ways of the Lord, each one of us come to know and to realize the purpose that he has uh, for our life. And so today we step into Matthew chapter 5 and we're talking about the qualities or characteristics that might come to typify a person or a community who is living in accordance with Jesus' new command. Really, there's three questions that we want to explore today as we open up the text. And we really want to engage this concept that there's a way that the world offers for us to live. For a 79-year-old man who's worked most of his life and been engaged in a, in a lot of other things and involved in a lot of other areas, we could probably sit here and make a list of a lot of other things that may, uh, he may have chose to spend his time in. But this week, he chose to spend his time with a bunch of teenagers from all over the country 
uh, leading them as they ministered to other people? What would compel a person to do that? And we discover that God works through those who live in contrast to the ways of the world. And as he does that, he causes us to have great effect in the world that he has planted us in. And it's interesting as we open up these pages today to discover how Jesus defines what a lifestyle in contrast actually looks like as it is lived out. And not only is he going to define what a lifestyle in contrast looks like, but he's also going to describe the results of living in contrast to the ways of the world. And so as we seek to explore and answer these questions together today, we turn our attention to the living book. In Matthew chapter 5, it'd be an appropriate time to take your Bibles and turn there if you have not already. We are going to be studying in verses 1 to 16. We're going to begin this morning reading verses 1 to 12. And I would ask that uh, as we pray and before we read, that you would stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power and effect. Thank you how you use it, how your spirit works even now. Lord, we acknowledge that this is a corporate activity. We don't come to you right now as individuals, though we are. We come before you as a community, as the body, as your body, the church. And even now as we are gathered, your spirit is at work as we open your word. And he is applying to each and every one of us exactly what we need so that this week, as we leave this place, we will be equipped and ready for the people that you bring into our lives. Lord, we know that you have us here with great purpose and you intend to use us with great effect. And so as we learn from our Savior Jesus today and these words that he gave as he stood on the mount, I pray that our hearts would be open, our minds would be ready, and our spirits would be willing to receive exactly what you have for us, that we might leave here changed uh, as individuals and as a community to love you and to love others in a better way. In Jesus' name, Amen. Remain standing with me as we read. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. Thank you. Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 5 are 
not unfamiliar to the audience that he is speaking them to. He is actually drawing on ancient hymns of the people. The people who had gathered would have understood how Jesus was structuring this teaching, which in turn would have also made this teaching easy to remember. Think about things uh, as we are growing up. What is one of the most simple way for, ways for us to remember a concept? Does anybody know? What's one of the most simple ways for us to remember a concept? What do we do as young children? We put it into what? Put it into a song. When we go to school we, and we're learning our alphabet, we learn to sing. When our children are young and we take them to church and they go to Sunday school, some of the first songs that we ever sing as children related to our faith are filled with the most important concepts. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me. So, Jesus, in his sermon on the mount, is drawing from the songbook of the Jews. Tones from Psalms, chapter 1, 32, 84, Psalm 144, Proverbs 3, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose rebellious acts are forgiven. And it continues. Psalm 84, blessed are those who live in your temple. Psalm 144, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who has found wisdom. Not only was Jesus Rehearsing with the people, phrasing that would have been familiar with them as they knew the ancient manuscripts. But these words were also drawn out in prophecy, in the words of the prophets. Daniel chapter 12, verse 12. Blessed is the one who waits and attains to the appointed days. And in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3, there's a commission to encourage the poor and brokenhearted to Release the captives, free the prisoners. It's a promise of comfort for those who mourn. And for disciples of Jesus, for those of us who are gathered here today who know the Lord, this state or identity of being blessed, it's deep and it's meaningful. And then we sometimes use this word frivolously, right? Sometimes just kind of in general conversations like, oh, blessings. Blessings, you know, blessings. And we're not really sure what it all encompasses and what it means, but it goes beyond mere feeling and mere frivolity. It involves our feelings, absolutely, but it also captures a way of life that engages the whole of us, body, mind, spirit. And it reflects to the world in a very meaningful and life-giving way the powerful transformations and dynamics that are going on inside of us because of the work of Jesus and the active, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't just someone that's along for the ride, just kind of a passive passenger waiting to see what we're going to do each day. That's not how it works. He's in us, and he's in us with power, and he's alive, and he's active, and he's effective. We live as blessed 
regardless of our circumstances. And we can, friends, because through Jesus, we have been given... And there are so many countercultural qualities within this list that Jesus shares with his disciples. We can see them apparent in each line. We are blessed when we are poor in spirit and the kingdom of heaven is ours. This is in contrast to those who would exalt themselves. Humility, then, is favored above pride. We are blessed when we mourn. And not only are we blessed when we mourn, but we're promised comfort. And friends, this is in contrast to those who always are living in this celebratory mode, fearing that if they face their grief, that hope and comfort will prove to be elusive. Accepting, even embracing the hard things in this life, allowing ourselves to experience the pain of loss, to be vulnerable enough with one another, to share our heartache, not just with one another, but also with God. This is to be favored above masquerading through life with a smile when beneath the surface we're really hurting and everything is not okay. Friends, the church is a place, it's a community of people who are caught out by God that is a place where it should be okay for us to not be okay together. We are blessed when we are meek. And Jesus says we'll inherit the earth. In the first beatitude then, there's a vertical element. So here in the third, there is a horizontal element. In the first one, it's ours is the kingdom of heaven. In the third one, the meek inherit the earth. Not only is humility with God to be favored above pride, but meekness, gentleness, or living out power in weakness is to be favored above the patterns of manipulation, control, force, or coercion. A posture of humility, one with one another, giving deference, acknowledging the strengths in another's perspective or point of view, taking time to listen and learn. These are qualities that are to be blessed above the dynamics and systems of this world's power structures. Again, Jesus, he's drawing from ancient wisdom literature here. Look at Psalm chapter 37. It's almost identical. But the meek shall inherit the land. Have we heard that before even today? In the Sermon on the Mount. And they should delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus says we're blessed when we hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. And he promises satisfaction. The pattern is beginning to emerge here. We're seeing humility, mourning, meekness. Gentleness, right living, mercy, purity in heart, peacemaking. These attitudes, friends, if we just label them and name them today, wouldn't you agree they stand in stark contrast to the ways that the world calls us to be blessed? Now, I think we could take all of these qualities from the Sermon on the Mount, all of these beatitudes, and we could lay them up against the top-selling leadership or self-improvement books in our culture, and we could quickly see how differently disciples of Jesus are formed 
and look when they live as he has called. And we are humbled to discover that living in this manner, because it is so countercultural, will inevitably invite suffering and persecution into our lives. Some of you sit here today and you know this, many of us. Whether you're watching with us online, you're here in the building, you know of the persecution that comes from living counterculturally. And sometimes, friends, it's very easy for us to point the finger at those outside the church. But could we spend just a few moments today? I know it'll be hard, but I'm preaching to myself as well to look within and to remember that it was those who considered themselves the most religious and the most spiritual who crucified our Lord. We too, church, we too are sometimes guilty of adopting the ways and the postures and the attitudes of the world as we relate to both God and one another. To be honest, if we sit here today and we're honest with ourselves and taking inventory of our own hearts and our own lives, we've not always lived as those who are poor in spirit. Sometimes we've failed to embrace living as broken and poured out with one another, to mourn and to weep together. In fact, sometimes, friends, it's just easier to avoid the pain of our sisters and brothers in Christ, even at times turning away from it because it makes us uncomfortable and insecure when we can't fix it or don't feel like we have the words to say that could help. We've not always been gentle. We've not always been meek. We've not always led from places of weakness. Sometimes... We've bought into the world's wisdom, leading from our strengths, lording our way over people, using strategies of manipulation and coercion to get our way. Sometimes we neglect right living for what is comfortable and complacent or easy. And friends, what's sad is that we sometimes do these things in the name of God. Of God. We've not always been quick to demonstrate or give mercy, even though God's mercy has abounded towards us and is new every morning. I think about my own journey as a father. I'm not always quick to give mercy. Rather, we often revel in judgment and criticism above mercy. And the purity of our hearts, it's sometimes stained by the way we chase after other gods. And are intrigued by the things of this world. The idolatry even of our traditions can hold us captive. And we find that it is far easier sometimes to cut off, to complain, to grow bitter. When relationships break down to point the finger. Rather than to take the courageous and bold step of faith outward toward a person who has wounded us. It's more comfortable to ignore, to sweep broken relationships under the rug and to believe that somehow, later on down the road, they'll put themselves back together than to do the hard work now of repair and reconciliation. As your pastor, I always indict myself first when I speak like this. 
And certainly in 20 years of pastoral ministry, I've been saddened as I've witnessed many congregations break apart and divide as they struggle to live out, endorse, and even disciple the attitudes and the life patterns that Jesus is encouraging in these verses. But friends, I promise you, and many of you in this room, you're old enough to have seen this. You've lived through really difficult, hard times. And you can sit here today in the confidence of faith, knowing that when we live this way, even in the face of all the things that the world says, and the world celebrates, when we live as Jesus has called us to live, it works. And friends, part of the reason why it works is because we aren't doing it ourselves. You see, the, world way, the world's ways, they're dependent on the people that are doing them. But when we're in Christ, for those of us who know Jesus and are being formed in the image of Christ, we trust and believe that it is the Spirit at work within us that's compelling these attitudes and behaviors as we are submitted to Him. Friends, we need the Lord. I need the Lord each and every day. I, I, I got I to have that time in the morning. It doesn't work if I don't. The day doesn't work. It doesn't flow. I don't have the energy, the strength, the perseverance. I'm off balance. We need the Lord. We have this great hope. We know if we live this way and as we live this way, we're going to be persecuted from within and from outside of the church. But there's this great hope that we can cling to when we are persecuted or reviled, whether it comes from in or out. And it's that ours is the kingdom of heaven. Verses 2 and 10, they form very nice bookends here. In verse 2, to those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 10, to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, hold tight to Jesus. A greater inheritance awaits. Church, there's one thing that we can write. There's one thing that we can take note of today. There's one thing that all of this leads to in the first part of this text today. Right living comes with a cost. Next week we're going to be in Romans 12. Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's costly. Jesus' sacrifice was worth something. People will say all kinds of things. And many of us here today have had all kinds of difficult, untrue, even terrible things said about us by others. It's worth rehearsing the words of Jesus in verse 12 again. Take a look at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets before you. In the same way. Now remember this 
original audience that Jesus is speaking to. In that moment, many who have gathered, when he said those words, they would have thought back to prophets like Jeremiah, who we know suffered great distress at the hands of his own people. While prophets like Daniel were thrown into lion's dens, and his friends were tossed into fiery furnaces by those who had worshipped other gods. Church, verse 12 is our hope to continue in the face of persecution. Whether it comes from our own people or people outside of our Christian communities, when we're walking by faith in the manner described by Jesus in these verses, compelled by his example of love, he motivates within us the endurance to continue. We can't do it ourselves. We just can't. And as we continue through this text, the great truth of the next grouping of verses is that as the Spirit works within and through us, we have effect in the places that He has planted us. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by the people. Now, this might come as a surprise to some of you, maybe a little-known something you didn't realize about me. I really enjoy cooking. I do. Uh, Not so much baking. One of the benefits of being part of a big family is that God has gifted our family in different ways. So in our home... We have some of our children that love to bake, and I really enjoy the things that they bake, sometimes too much. You know what I mean? Sometimes I have to say, okay, we're putting a pause on baking. There's going to be no more baking because I just feel a little bit disgusting. (laughs) It's a lot of good food that comes out of that oven. Other children of ours are great at cooking. They can do everything eggs, and we make Haitian dishes, we make pickles, and we make rice and beans, and they help cut up things and prepare and cook. And one of the great ingredients, one of the most useful ingredients that we have is salt. Any other lovers of salt in here? Oh, I come from a family that loves salt. Man, I remember growing up in my home watching my pap. There was always salt on the table. And man, no matter how good the food came out or how much I loved it, Pap always takes salt. <laughs> My grandmother would say, Robert, knock it off. <laughs> Put that salt away. <laughs> Salts, it's effective. It's effective. And as I've enjoyed learning and getting better. I really like cooking for Sheila, by the way. The the kids just don't seem to appreciate the food as much as Sheila does, right? The older we get, the more we appreciate good food. You know, like you give the kids something really good, and they'll be like, I want to go to Burger King after they eat it. (laughs) A little bit of salt can do a lot for a dish. It can do a lot. It can be used with great effect. Not only is it a great preservative, but also highlight and draw out natural flavors that are in the dish. It can contribute a savory zest 
to whatever might be uh, being prepared. And while it is actually a chemical impossibility for salt to lose its flavor, it's not at all an impossibility for salt to be made impure or for its flavor to be tainted or to be used in an ineffective and unproductive way. If I were to just take my Bible today and close it up, and I were to ask somebody to come on up here with a shaker of salt and just salt my Bible, effective? Not really, right? We can use salt in ineffective, unproductive ways. Jesus is using a figure of speech in verse 13 to describe the effect that living according to these Beatitudes can have on both the already believing and the not yet believing populations of the world. As lived out in the church, salt might have either a preserving quality that seeks to encourage and endorse holiness, but it might also have a zesty or flavorful purpose that directs others' attention towards the work of God that is happening constantly all around us. In the world, living as salt might show someone who has not yet believed how or where God has revealed himself or demonstrated his grace and goodness in the world. It might also demonstrate to someone who is not yet in Christ how a life submitted to Christ is not only a life of joy, love, peace, patience, and kindness, among other things, but it's also a life of abundance rather than a life of lack. Salt shows and tells a not-yet-believing world what godliness looks like as it's lived out within the communities we've been planted in. True godliness, friends, is compelling. It is. True godliness is compelling and captivating to those whom God is drawing to himself. And we never know who he may be drawing. We do know, however, that God is always about the business of calling and drawing people unto himself. I love, from time to time, taking out the Message Bible and reading passages from it. And this verse, verse 13, is really drawn out well. It's on your screen. Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. And friends, we might ask the question, do our lives reflect a salty character, a salty quality? Now, sometimes that word's used by our youth today, our young people, right? Like salty, like, oh, he's salty. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about here. We say it because, like, tears have salt in them, right? But that's not what we're discussing. Are we living in a way that directs people's focus towards the God flavors of this earth? Wow. What a compelling purpose. That's compelling. 
to live in a way that directs the attention of other people, not to ourselves, but to God? Does the quality of our life provoke curiosity that might lead someone toward further inquiry? Why do you live this way? Did you ever have anybody ask you that? Why do you live this way? Why do you do this? How do you do this? We get that one a lot. How do you do this? And honestly, I, my first response is normally Jesus. It just is. Because honestly, friends, that is the only way. It is. And I think all of us would say that. I hope we would. Where do you get your energy or your strength from? I've had people ask me that. I say, the Lord, it doesn't come from within me. It cannot. I've tried. Believe me, I've tried. Of my own efforts, it does not work. Where do you find time to rest? I rest in the Lord. He gives me time. Where does your motivation come from? My motivation comes from Jesus. He's the example. What are you living for? I hope I'm living for him. To give God glory. To bring him honor. To lift the name of Christ. Who's compelling you to do this? I hope it's Jesus. And these are questions, friends, that as we live, they could just come from people we work with. Neighbors that live next door. They've, they've come to me. Perhaps they've come to you. What wonderful ways to just direct the attention of those we rub shoulders with every day to the Lord. To live as salt is to recognize that by the power of the Spirit who indwells us, we can have great effect in this world. Our lives can be living testaments of the gospel. And this gives us great purpose and a great reason for getting out of bed every morning. How might Jesus work through me today so people see, know, and possibly even experience the goodness of God? That's compelling. That excites me in the morning to get out of bed. Even when it's really early. Even when I'm really tired, even when I've been at a meeting the night before until 10 o'clock and the alarm goes off the next morning at 4, it compels me, this compels me to get out of bed because I don't know and I'm excited to see what he might do. Oftentimes this is within my own family. Perhaps that's the context for many of you as well. Those are the people that we're closest to, that we're rubbing shoulders with the most. But for many of us, we go into offices every day and work with other people or we live in communities with other people who are in similar walks of life that we are. This question can compel us to live with great purpose and have the effect that Jesus intends for his disciples as they live out the Beatitudes. Our lives, including our actions and our words, can be a clear representation of the powerful and positively transformative effects that flow from a life in Christ. Living in Christ has positively transformative effects. And the world will see. The world should see. And so Jesus doesn't stop here with just this illustration. This principle is too important. There's a second Word picture that's required. As salt has effect, 
so too does light. Look down at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. Now, when I read the words of verse 14 this week, this is the beautiful thing about having a living word. We can read a text over and over and over again. And one day we read it and we see something we never saw before. And I don't know why I never saw this before, but this week when I read this text, the words of Jesus in John 8, 12 came to my mind. Jesus says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And when I connected those two concepts, one of the things that that did within me is I thought, wow, Jesus is the most truest, most effective, most real sense of light, the brightest sense of light that there ever was. How much humility should I carry this designation with? Church, we are the light of the world. I hold that with great humility because it sounds like, as Jesus defines it, that's an incredibly powerful concept. And once again, we remember that Jesus' audience was mostly, at the time here, of Jewish heritage. And again, in his words, he's speaking from the scrolls of the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, I, the Lord, officially commission you. I take hold of your hand. Look at that word, commission. I take hold of your hand. I protect you and make you a covenant mediator for the people. This is spoken to the nation. And a light... To the nations. The words of God spoken through the prophet Isaiah are given to the nation of Israel. And due to the frequency of language with this in the Old Testament, it was not uncommon for the Israelite people to see themselves as light in a dark world. A few chapters later, Isaiah chapter 49, he says, Is it too insignificant a task for you to be my servant? to reestablish the tribes of Jacob and restore the remnant of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations. Now, watch this. Don't miss this. So you can bring my deliverance to the remote regions of the earth. Hold on to that last line because it's going to come back in Acts. And we're going to get there in a second. Indeed, Jerusalem... Or Zion, as it was, was situated on a hill in a way that it simply could not be hidden. The nation was to reflect the true light of God in the world that God was establishing them within. A light with purpose, the purpose of bringing God's deliverance to the remotest regions of the earth. And before Jesus ascends, his disciples are gathered together in a room and he's commissioned them and he reminds them of this purpose again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria and to the furthest parts of the earth. 
as he prepares his disciples for Pentecost, when the Spirit would come down in power and permanently inhabit the disciples, Jesus demonstrates that God's mission remains unchanged. Witnesses, church, we are witnesses, functioning as light, testifying to the deliverance that is available through Christ to the remotest part of the earth. That's why we take time on this Sunday. Every month, 10 months out of the year, 11 months out of the year, on the fourth Sunday of the month, what do we do? Yeah, we, we talk about our, our global ministries. Why? Why would we take one Sunday a month and spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about global ministries because this mission is important until all have heard. Amen? People need to hear the good news of Christ in order for their lives to be transformed and changed by his power. Jesus, the true light of the world, he sends his helper, the Holy Spirit, to indwell his disciples in a way that would cause them to shine and to bear witness to the deliverance that is available to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Verse 15 then gives further illumination. It would be foolish to take the power of this lamp and to hide it under a basket. So we don't do that. We sing that when we're little too, right? I did under a bush. Oh, no. That's what all the kids yell. We live it. We proclaim it brightly, boldly, sharing the life and the hope of the gospel so that it gives light to the whole house. Some of you know the, the writer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He once said this. He said, quote, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. End quote. Powerful. If we believe, if we believe that the light and the life that we have been given is of eternal worth and value, then it's worth sharing it with others who have not yet believed. Because we believe it can be equally as powerful and effective for them. And these are instructions not just for the individual disciples of Jesus. Indeed, yes, it's for them. But he's speaking these words to communities of people, to the church here today. Friends, disciples of Jesus, collectively, we are called the church. And so both individually and corporately, our church and our lives are placed on a stand like a city set on a hill, directing and drawing others toward the goodness and the greatness of God. Our lives and the testimony of our Christian communities proclaim the good news in our actions and our words. For the one who has not yet believed never opened the Bible. For one who would never have a reason to open the Bible. To encounter the living God. The first good news that someone might ever see or hear or read. Is the good news that flows from the lives and the words of those disciples who are in Christ. And it could be seeing and experiencing that. That leads someone to pick up. God's word, to open its pages 
and to start to try to discover more. Ask questions that could lead to spiritual conversations, an opportunity for them to hear the good news of Jesus. Watch what Jesus says happens when we live this way, both with one another and within our broader communities. As it turns out, a lifestyle submitted to the ways of Jesus, the ways that he describes in the Beatitudes, is a lifestyle that God uses and works through with great effect. Look at verse 16. It's the last verse we're going to look at today. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When our communities image these patterns, when we are functioning both individually and collectively as salt and light, others can see the good that God accomplishes through us and give glory to our Father. Church, the challenges before us are many. I realize that. I'm like, I'm like an optimist and, and always see things half full. I understand I just like to believe that God is so powerful and he can do anything he wants through his people. I really believe that. I know that our world values hostility above humility. I see it. You see it. I know living with humility is hard. I know that we live in a culture that celebrates impurity rather than purity, that celebrates unrighteousness rather than righteousness. But friends, the light of Jesus, greater is he who lives within us than he that is in where? The world. We can have greater effect. I understand that our culture promotes hiding rather than kindness and gentle engagement. That we see in the world today a lot of arguing and making demands for Others' ways rather than listening and learning. Having postures of students rather than experts in everything. I see that our world is soaked in judgment and criticism over peacemaking and mercy. We all see this. Separation, division is valued above reconciliation and restoration. It does not have to be so. Not for the disciple of Jesus and not for his church. We can be different. We should be different. And by the power of God at work with each and every one of our lives, he can cause us to live differently and have great effect shining for Christ in the places he's planted us. As our team comes today to lead us in another song, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this example. Lord, I'm compelled that the first public teaching of Christ in the Gospels, in the New Testament, is a public teaching that calls us to ways that are so incredibly counter to the ways that we see before us every day. 
And Lord, it heightens our need for you. It makes us more aware of the dependence and the reliance that we must have on your power and your strength. And Lord, we can walk with great faith and great hope because we know you are faithful and that you are present with us. You have never left us. You will not forsake us. And you will accomplish what you desire through our church and through us as individuals. Lord, give us the strength. Give us the hope. Give us the endurance to live in the manner that we've been called. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we sing our last song, a question. What might living as salt and light look like for you this week and beyond?